You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. So we've been talking about uh, the teachings of Jesus and that throughout this uh, year I hope to teach you and instruct you on the things that Jesus taught that were important to us. And we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount and we've been looking at what Jesus had to say in his beginnings of his teaching ministry here on earth. Last week we focused on the Beatitudes and how important it is to, to follow those things and recognizing that life is hard, but you're blessed and happy when you know that you have the promise of the life that is to come, eternal life in Christ. So there's blessings even in the difficulties that we go through. This morning I would like to talk to you about uh, having finding fulfillment in life. There's nothing worse in life than to feel like your life is unfulfilled. If you feel like your life is purposeless, meaningless, so you feel like you've done different jobs but nothing quite fits you, you feel like you don't really have a career, you've had multiple careers and you feel like, I don't really have a purpose. Some people look for purpose and fulfillment in relationships and if you might find yourself single or newly single, if that's how we're defining fulfillment in life, then you're going to find some frustration along the way some difficulty along the way. So surely life must be more than a career, more than a relationship. Life must be more than just these things in order to find personal fulfillment. And so I want to talk to you about finding fulfillment in life through Christ. And so I want you to know today that your life was meant to matter. Your walk with Jesus is meaningful and it matters. Your faith is meant to be meaningful, not a passive life, not something that's kind of like an additive to your life. It's supposed to be the main ingredient, not the side dish. That your faith is to be central to who you are, and it's to be visible and a blessing to others. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We have it on the screen behind me that you can follow along with us today. And my hope is that this message will bless you and help you to find fulfillment in life. Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me read that last verse one more time. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So in order for people to glorify God, they have to actually see your good works, to see your faith in action. Jesus gives two examples from these verses here about what we are supposed to be. The first one is salt, and the second one is light. Both of these pictures have meaning. Salt adds flavor. It takes what's bland and spices it up. Salt was also very important 
to food preservation in ancient times. There was no refrigeration. So if you wanted to preserve meat, you heavily salted it, you dried it out to the point that it could be stored and it wouldn't uh, expire or go bad. And then you took that very salty, dry piece of meat and then you put it in a stew or you boiled it in water and it kind of rehydrated and you served it to people. So the idea of uh, being salt is that your life brings and your faith brings some flavor to life. It brings some excitement to life. It's not bland. I don't know about you, I don't want to see bland Christians. Boring people who don't do anything with their life, who don't do anything with their faith, but your faith is meant to be vibrant and alive. Uh, even, dare I say, a little bit spicy so that people can't forget that flavor right away. But it's also to have a saving quality. Your words, your speech, have the ability to save someone's soul. And so I encourage you to use your words and your faith to be able to be preserving and saving. The second example is light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't take a, a, a lamp and you put it under a basket because it'll go out. You know, we're talking, not talking about flashlights or anything like that. We're talking about that they had uh, oil lamps or they had lamps that would burn at night. And so when they would burn that, They wouldn't want to put anything over it because they would either smother it out or the basket itself would burn as well. Jesus says that your life should be like a city on a hill that's visible for miles around. Weary travelers who are traveling in the dark find great comfort in looking to a city that's on a hill and that's lit. They gravitate towards the light because there they know they can find rest for the night. They can find safety. Your life is meant to shine a light that's visible for all to see. The Christian life was never meant to be a hidden covert life. There are no secret agent saints in God's world today. That we are not to be uh, casually and comfortably Christian to the point that no one knows about it. Instead, your faith, your Christian life is meant to be bold beautiful and light and life-giving. Now, how do you make your faith more visible? You do it by serving and helping others. When you are active in doing good for others and for God, people will take notice of it and they will thank God for you. They may not necessarily acknowledge God, but they'll thank God for what you do and how you make their community, their neighborhood, their lives, their friendship better. They say, you know, I thank God that you're in my life. And that gives you an opportunity to say, you know why I do it? Let me share with you the reason and the purpose behind why I do what I do. So Jesus talks about salt and light, but then he speaks on his purpose in relation to the law and the old covenant. So take a look at the next few verses. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus says these words, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle. Now those are interesting words that aren't used very often in today's language. But basically every T that's crossed, every I that's dotted, even the smallest part of Scripture is what he's saying will by no means pass from the law until it is fulfilled. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall also be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when he talks about entering the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about entering uh, God's eternal rest, being in heaven forever. But you might ask yourself, what is the law? We're not talking about municipality law. We're not talking about the law of the land. We're not talking about breaking the law in terms of legal terms here. But the law refers to the Mosaic law. These are from the first five books of the Old Testament. These are the commands and statutes given by God to the Jewish people through Moses. And it was called the Old Covenant. This was the covenant of following uh, the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets and the sacrificial system and the temple worship and the, the sacred days of observation and three different feasts throughout the years. This is what the Old Covenant encompasses. This includes the Ten Commandments along with instructions regarding God's standards for marriage, for parenting, living with your neighbor, and for personal conduct. It included observations on certain holy days of the year. And it offered sacrifices for sins when people broke the law. Now, some people thought that Jesus might be a revolutionary who came to overthrow the law and the Jewish system of worship. In fact, that's what many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and teachers of the law tried to paint him as, that this man is trying to undo and destroy our very way of life. Our whole basis of faith is what Jesus is trying to destroy. And Jesus makes it clear that he didn't come to do that. What Jesus was attempting to do was remove the hypocrisy he saw in those who claimed to follow the law. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, would demand a strict adherence to the law from the people, yet privately themselves, they would break the rules. So they'd be really good at observing certain things. They wouldn't work on the Sabbath. They would tithe even of their, uh, you know, garden, their spices in their garden, but yet they would oppress their neighbor. They would take advantage of the poor. They would do wrong things. And so Jesus is saying, you know, the law for observing law's sake and to observe the covenant's rites and rituals, but to not have that change your heart in one bit, that's not following the law. The commands of God have not changed, but the covenant has. Write that down. The commands of God have not changed, but the covenant has. The old covenant is done away with. The new covenant has begun. The old way of observing the law is done away with. The new way has come. But the commands of God, do not lie, do not murder, honor your father and mother, have not changed and have remained the same. So what's changed is the means by which righteousness is achieved. And it's no longer by our actions, but by rather by what Jesus did on the cross for us. So he's not undoing everything that the Heavenly Father commanded. This is why he says that not one iota, which is the Greek word there, not one word or phrase or even minor part of the law will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not. So 
the, the unchanging word of the Heavenly Father has not changed and has not been undermined or diminished. Instead, what Jesus is trying to establish is establish following the morality of the law, not the rituals and observance of the law. Not the letter of the law, but rather the heart and the spirit of the law. He said, I did not come to destroy the law, but fulfill it. So how does Jesus fulfill the law? Let's take a look at four ways that Jesus does this. First of all, Jesus, our Savior, fulfills the law by, because only Jesus lived fully obedient to the law and never broke it. He was perfect and sinless and obeyed the law fully. So when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law, he is one of the few people that can say, or I should say the only person that can say that he never broke any of the commandments or broke the law. Scripture reinforces 1 Peter 2, 22 says that Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Hebrews 4, 15 says that Jesus was tempted like we were, but unlike us who fall and give into temptation, Jesus was without sin, even in spite of being tempted. Basically, he's the only one that got a perfect score on the test. Everyone else failed in one way or another. But Jesus fulfilled the law where others couldn't. Not even Moses, who gave the law, could completely follow the Mosaic law. Not King David, not any of the prophets who called the people back to following the law of God and the covenant that God established with his people. None of them could fully keep or follow the law. Only Christ alone stands as the only one who truly fulfilled the law, who embodied every bit of it, and was truly holy. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Christ, the coming Savior of the world. So when we say that Jesus fulfilled the law, he fulfilled all the things that were in the Old Covenant that predicted that there would be one who would come, sent by God, the Son of God himself, who would come and save the people from their sins. Bible scholars J. Barton Payne said there are 574 scriptures that prophesy the life and coming of the Messiah, the Christ. Alfred Edersheim cites 456 verses pertaining to the Christ. Conservatively, scholars believe that Jesus fulfilled at least 300 of those prophecies during his earthly ministry here on earth. 300 of them. Now, the odds of that are pretty outstanding. For one person to fulfill 300 of those prophecies is amazing to think about. Author Josh McDowell cites a professor at Westmont College in one of his books and states the odds of one person fulfilling eight of those prophecies would be one in ten to the 17th power. That's ten with 17 zeros behind it. A mathematical impossibility for just one person to fulfill even eight of these prophecies. Listen, you know, you... People could say, okay, well, Jesus isn't really who he claimed to be because he made it up or he, you know, manipulated the circumstances. But a few things that you can't manipulate. You can't determine where you were born. You can't determine the, the lineage that you were born into. You can't determine 
uh, who you were born to and where, these are things that are specific to the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus himself fulfilled. Jesus also fulfills the law be, being the one by God who he purposed from the beginning to be. Jesus was purposed by God to be the Savior of the world. And when he came to this earth, he fulfilled the, the promises of the old covenant that one person would come and save the people from their sins. Thirdly, Jesus fulfilled the law by giving himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled. Because of him, we can made holy in God's sight, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Jesus did. Now, you have to understand, the old covenant allowed for people to find atonement for the things they did wrong. If someone couldn't keep every bit of the law, in other words, if they lied, cheated, or stole, or committed murder, there was sacrifices that they could offer in the temple that would bring atonement for their sin. But these things were only temporary. These things would only be an occasion-by-occasion basis. But when Christ came, when he died on the cross, because he is the Son of God, because he is both God and fully God and fully man, his blood was eternal, and so his blood only needed to be shed once for the punishment of our sins, both now and forevermore. Hebrews 9 puts it this way. If we look at verses 11 through 15, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things that are to come. Let me just pause there for a moment and encourage you in this, is that oftentimes we stay away from church because we're thinking to ourselves, if I go to church and the life that I've led, and the things that I've done, and the things that I've said, then if I go in there, God will surely condemn me, and I don't belong there, so I'm going to stay away from church. But it says that Christ came as the high priest of things, good things that were to come. It is basically for this purpose and for this reason that Christ came, because of the fact that you have messed up and that you do need a Savior, and that you do need forgiveness, and that God wants to have a relationship with you. Because of that, he came. So he is a high priest of the good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Now, he's mentioning here the creation of the temple, built by human hands, constructed beautifully and ornately for a house of worship, and that people could only go in at certain times, and that they had to ritually purify themselves before they could even go into the, the place of worship to pray. And he's saying that he is speaking of and a more perfect temple or tabernacle, not made with people's hands, but rather done eternally and made by God. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but of his own blood. He entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works 
to serve the living God. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, under the old covenant, the sacrificial system, there were things that were done. There was the blood of bulls and goats that were offered for the atonement of sin because the wages of sin were always death. Something had to die when sin was committed in order to be atoned for. And said, you know, there used to be things that you would do for that. This, the sacrificial system or the sprinkling of ashes that was made whole to make the, the priests holy so they could enter into the holy place. He's saying those things, if those things could make you temporarily clean, if those things could make you in your flesh clean, how much more will the eternal blood of Christ and the work of His Holy Spirit create for you an everlasting covenant and cleanse your conscience from your sin and dead works in order to serve the living God? Verse 15. And for this reason, He is a mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So Christ supersedes the old covenant. He is better than, greater than the old covenant by giving of himself for the sins of the people. He established a new covenant, but is also the mediator of that covenant. So what the mediator would typically do would mean that the priest would be the go-between between the adherent, the congregant, the member of the Jewish community, and God. So what would happen is in the Old Covenant, if you were sinful, if you did something wrong and you went to go to the, the house of worship, you went to the temple and you would go and see the priest and you would bring the required sacrifice that was for your particular economic status. So if you were poor, it was turtle doves. If you were more wealthy, it was an oxen. And you would offer up that sacrifice for your sins in accordance to what the law said. And the priest would take that sacrifice, he would offer it on the altar, and he would offer prayers for your sins, and, and you would be atoned for and forgiven. What it's saying now with the new covenant is that Christ now serves in that function. Christ is our priest. He is our media. He is our go-between so that we can go to him in our times when we've messed up. Which, by the way, let me encourage you in that that the times of gathering and to worship God is not solely only for the righteous and the perfect. Aren't you glad for that? Hopefully you're not thinking about barbecue later and swimming in your pool. Hopefully you're still with me. If you're still with me, say bacon. See, there's three of you who are paying attention. The rest of you have zoned out. You're already gone. You're already on a patio. And you're already underneath your, pat, you know, your awning. And you're thinking about grilling. And you're thinking about all the things that you'll do later on today. Stay with me because this is important, okay? It's a new covenant because he has become our high priest, and made it possible for us to come to him, confess what we've done wrong and our, our sins and bring them before him, and he is able to immediately in that moment grant us forgiveness. And so much more so, not just granting us forgiveness, but also to hear our prayers, and it also says that Christ makes intercession for us before the Father. So instead of having an earthly priest come and pray for us, we can go right to Christ as our great high priest and that he will atone for our sins and he will offer the prayer of blessing and the prayer of forgiveness before God the Father himself. So, he has made a new covenant for us. He has fulfilled 
the law by giving of himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Fourthly, Jesus fulfilled or completed the law by aligning the letter of the law with the heart and spirit of the law. If you continue to read Matthew 5, you'll see that in some ways Jesus makes it harder to follow the law by challenging the listener to examine their hearts, their thoughts, and intentions. Think about that. As if you read the rest of chapter 5, you'll see, you know, he doesn't talk about do not murder. You're like, okay, well, I'd never murder somebody. But he says, don't even call them fool. It's like, well, I've done that. But he's saying, you know, your intentions, your thoughts about that are, he's saying, you know, I'm challenging you to not just simply try and get away with what you don't do. But I'm challenging you to change your heart. He says, don't commit, you know, the law says, don't commit adultery. You're like, okay, I won't commit adultery. But Jesus says, even if you look upon someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. Like, oh, I may have done that at some point in time in my life. So what is he doing? He's calling us not to the letter of the law, but the spirit and the heart of the law, bringing us back to the purpose of why God's word and covenant was given to us in the first place. He wants to get back to the heart behind the commandments that were given. They weren't given because God enjoys rules and regulations, but they were given to us so that we can see how God intended for us to live, to help us to walk with God with purity of heart. God's not interested in our rituals and rites. In fact, God often rebuked the people of Israel for following the rites and rituals of their religion but they lived however they wanted to during the week. If you look at the ministry of the prophets to the people of Israel, there are many times he said, you, you know, God says you follow, you acknowledge me with your lips, but you don't follow me with your heart. And so it doesn't matter whether you go to church on Sunday, although you should, by the way, even on the holiday weekends, even though you're thinking about the patio and cookout and grilling and hot dogs and pool later on. Still go to church. It's important. But it's not just about going and observing worship and doing things that are, that are kind of rote and comfort for us alone. If those things have no meaning behind them beyond when you leave the, the doors of that building, then it really hasn't achieved what the Word was given to achieve in the first place, which is to change who we are. That we would be known as people of God. That when the Jewish people were called and set apart as people of God. It wasn't just, oh, they, they, they go to temple on Saturdays. Or they observe the feast three times of the year. Or they don't cut the sides of their hair. Or they don't wear a garment made out of two different fabrics. Oh, that's why, you know, they're, they're God's people. No, that they would be God's people at the crossroads of the world. Think about that. Because when God established the kingdom of Israel, he said, I want you to, to, to establish your kingdom all the way from the Mediterranean Sea to the river Euphrates. Basically, that entire area was supposed to be the people of Israel so that anybody who was going to Africa or Europe or passing through to Asia, they would have to go through God's people. They would have to encounter God's people. They would have to have an interaction with God's people. And what would set them apart as being different from every other nation on the earth? How they acted, how they behaved, and how they lived. 
He's not interested in just ritual observance, but he wants us to follow him with our hearts. Those things are beautiful. It's wonderful to sit in, into, in a sanctuary and to hear a beautiful aria or to hear organ music or to hear those sorts of things. But if it doesn't get beyond just our observance, it, it doesn't mean anything else. So we must combine the beauty with our action. So if it's not about what we do, then how does this align with the Apostle Paul's writings about that we're not under law but grace? Romans 6.14. Well, Paul goes on to write that the law brought death, but only Christ could bring him the eternal life that he needed. So is this a contradiction? No, because Paul explains further that the law was a picture declaring what was to come, Colossians 2.17. The law, the word of God, apart from grace, is death. It required people to keep it entirely, every single bit of it. The law also revealed how sinful mankind was. Every sin was defined so that there'd be no ambiguity. Once you read it, you became guilty of it. Perhaps the best way to understand this, this change is to break it into two parts, the law before Christ and the law after Christ, the law beforehand and then grace coming into the situation. Prior to Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, people had to keep the entire law in order to have relationship with God. But no one could do that. So only a few people, prophets, Moses, people who were called by God, only those people could have a really close relationship with God. But after the death of Christ, the holiness of God's righteous requirements of the law were satisfied in Jesus. Remember I said he fulfilled the law because he kept all of it. And it was satisfied. So now the Word of God serves as a guide for our conduct as people in right relationship with God. So it's not about us doing all the requirements of the covenant in order to have relationship with God and to be right with God. Christ died on the cross, made right relationship with us so that we can have relationship with Him. And now as we are in relationship with Him, we follow what He says. Why is that important? It's like being in a marriage covenant. It's about being in a, in a marriage relationship. If you get married and you say, okay, I'm going to be faithful to you and you alone, but then you cheat every weekend, then you are not really being truly and fully committed to that person in the truest sense of the word. So relationship comes first, and then the observance and the maintaining of that relationship comes second. You don't do all these things to finally get to a place where God loves you. God loved you first where you are and because of the cross has brought you into relationship with God and made it possible and now we choose to walk with him. So it should change the way you look at things. Grace above works. Now it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast about it. So are works necessary for salvation? And the answer to that is No. Works are the fruit of your salvation, not the means of it. Do good works, but they are not what saves you. You are saved through faith in Christ. You should do good works to show what God's done in your life. That's the difference between law and grace. The law required acts of goodness in order to be recognized as righteous, but through Christ we received his righteousness at the cross. 
Our works are the acts of gratitude for the salvation we've already received. Romans 5.20 tells us that when, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This does not mean that we have a license to sin, but rather a reminder of how all-encompassing what Jesus did on the cross was for us. Grace covers when we fail God. There is forgiveness when we ask for it. When we fall short, grace makes up the difference. And that's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that the moral law of the Old Covenant still applies to our life, but the physical requirements of the Old Covenant are no longer in place. So that's what Jesus said. When he says, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, he's saying, I want you to get back to the moral law. So when people say, well, what should we be following? Should we be following the Old Covenant or the New Covenant? Some people say, well, completely disregard the Old Covenant because, you know, that's under law, and we're under grace now. So if it doesn't say it in the New Testament, then we don't fall in the old. But I would challenge you with this. Jesus said that none of these things would be undone. Instead, what we're talking about is that God wants us to have the moral law at work within us. So when it comes to every commandment in Scripture, we must ask ourselves, what is the moral law behind it? Am I following it? Am I still following it? How many know that, you know, just because some of the Ten Commandments are not mentioned in the New Testament doesn't mean that we stop following the Ten Commandments, right? So we know that that's still there. So that's moral law. We follow the moral law. Not because we want to be moral and upright people and to look our, down our noses at other people. Because sometimes when we come to Christ, Christians can come to Christ, they're really bad when they come to Christ, they get cleaned up, and then there's an air of superiority that they have. A, a sense of self-righteousness where they start to be condemning of those who walk into the church or looking down their noses at others who may not be as perfect as they are. I don't know about you. I'm glad that God still loves imperfect people and that he's still working us to bring us into the perfection that is in him. Listen, we're, when we're sinful, it doesn't make it, well, you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. The scriptures tell us to strive for perfection. Who is perfection? Christ to be Christ-like, not to be like someone else here, not to pray like someone else in this church or to, to speak like someone else in this church or to live like someone else in the church. We're, our goal is to be like Christ because the word Christian means follower of Christ. So let's do our best to follow him. The truth is we're called to a higher standard. Jesus does not want hypocritical observance of rules and commands. He doesn't want us to follow him pharisaically, but rather he wants a heart change, the moral law of the gospel overruling the old covenant law. Instead of just avoiding the act of sin, changing the way that we think so that every area of our life is pleasing God, not just the parts that people see our thoughts, our intentions, our motivations, so that those are right too. Because there are times where temptation comes. There's times where the old life comes. And we have to bring into alignment our way of thinking, our motivations with what is right, what is true, and what is godly. So Christ fulfilled the law, but I want you to know something too. Through Jesus, the law is fulfilled in you. Did you know that? The law is fulfilled in each of us. Romans 8, 1 through 4 puts it this way. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through our flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that right, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us. Fulfilled in us who did not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So here's the realization. So Christ fulfilled the law. He established the law. He is the perfect, perfect uh, example of obeying the law. His life fulfilled the law in the sense that he gave his life as a redemptive act for us. God wants us to, to fulfill the law in the sense of keeping the moral law and that our hearts and our motivations and our intentions are pure. But it's fulfilled in us because all of what Christ intended to do, all of what God intended to do from the very beginning of time is now made manifest in what Jesus did on the cross and that when we accept that in and of ourselves, we now have within us the fullness of everything that God has. We also have the fulfillment of what was promised in Scripture, eternal life. When you realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the law required, and because of the finished work on the cross, we are made righteous by grace through faith. Then the law is fulfilled in us through him. Jesus said John 10.10, that Jesus came to have, that we might have life and have it to the full an abundant life, an eternal life. I want you to think about life this way. Your life, if you're only living for this world, is only a half life. Because your life is not just simply everything that happens here on this earth and then you die. There is another component to life. Life eternal. Within you is a soul that will outlive your body. And the scriptures tell us that we will either spend eternity in one of two places, either eternally with God in heaven or separated from God in hell. So there is a part of your life that is a soul that will go on beyond this life. So if we are only living for this time frame, only for our enjoyment, only for the season that we're in now, and we're not thinking about what happens beyond this life, we are only living a half of a life. We are free from the letter of the law that brings death because we can never achieve it on our own. But when we live by the law of the Holy Spirit which brings life, we uh, are party to that eternal life in Christ. Today, we are free from condemnation from others, from our sins, from God's condemnation upon us, and we are free to live fully to God. When you realize that in Christ you are free from sin and able to live in freedom for the life that God's purpose for you, that is a fulfilling life. When you realize that, that you can truly live free from sin and that you can fully realize the purpose that God has for you, that is a fulfilling life. That is finding true fulfillment. A life not of frustration, but a life of fulfillment in Jesus. In him we find fulfillment as we walk with a new purpose and new set of values. Living for him and not for ourselves. 
We are fulfilled when we live the Christian life that he has set up for us. My prayer today is that God gives us a heart to match the change that Jesus already has made in us by salvation. He's already forgiven you of your sins. If you come to him and you say, you know, I'm hearing what the scriptures say. I choose to believe on Jesus, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by any works that I've done, but because of what Christ took on the cross, all of my sins, my judgment was placed upon him, and because of that, I choose to believe and accept him, then you are made right before him. Now that you have a right, now that you have made, been made right in Christ, it's important that he makes your heart right, your motives right, your intentions right. When we do that, then we are truly living by the love and the heart and the spirit of God's word instead of worrying if we're living under condemnation for it. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.